you're listening to the podcast of Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. The purpose of this podcast is to help you grow in your walk with Christ and apply his word to your life. My name is Ben Hine and I am one of the pastors here at Shady Grove and I am joined by two other guests this morning. I'm here with senior pastor Charlie Bale and Mike the Doc Nola and we're glad that both of them are here with us today to discuss Mark chapter 9. Uh, it's been a pretty significant week uh, in the life of our country and in the life of many Christians. And so we're just going to start opening up uh, this morning, uh, just talking about how we've been processing this last week. And hopefully we can just be real with you all and also uh, provide a word of encouragement. But as of right now, today is Saturday. So um, our country's presidential election has not yet been officially called. And there's all sorts of things happening in the media. And it's easy just to kind of get consumed um, by what's happening all around us and for our hearts, I think, to be misplaced and to get caught up in maybe things we shouldn't get caught up in. And so I just wanted to hear from both of you guys. Uh, how have you been processing uh, this last week's events? And, you know, this passage in Mark 9, we see, you know, this transfiguration, this preview or as it were of, of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, so how can we in these turbulent times, um, lean into this glorious, radiant Christ uh, with everything going on. So how have you guys been uh, processing this? And we'll start with you, Mike. Well, I think it's been a moment to think about God's sovereignty when you see uh, Jesus in his transcendent glory with two of the people from the past who had been gone for, in the case of Moses, 2,000 years. Um, and also to think about the uh, the passages of Scripture that say God raises up those whom he wishes and he brings down those whom he wishes as well. So, you know, however things go uh, in our limited uh, temporal situation, we can depend on God being sovereign and uh, whatever happens is not out of his control. Yeah, that's good. One thing I've been um, thinking about that, Mike, with kind of what you said, thinking about God's sovereignty is... Um, and I don't expect you necessarily to have a thought on this unless you want to, but what is the balance in um, kind of balancing the Lord's sovereignty, uh, but also with just a posture of lament, you know? So you read these, you read the Psalms of lament, and of course they either always like kind of begin or end or begin and then end with, you know, this big picture of who God is. But in the middle, there's this posture of lamenting and crying out. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people who, uh, no matter who wins, right? Because they have hopes and uh, real desires like tied up in it, they're crying out, right? And so what's, I, as a Christian, I think, and as a leader, I've been trying to balance of what's what's the balance in, yes, upholding the sovereignty of the Lord, but also allowing myself to stoop low in lament with those who lament, you know, that's just, that's hard to kind of know. I don't know, do you have any thoughts on that? Me or Charles? Yeah, either. I mean, either of you guys, <laughs> yeah. but... Our women's um, Bible studies groups have been through um, that very thing, been uh, talking about lament and the book of Lamentations. And one of the things that's come out of it for us is that uh, there's, a, there's a place in the Christian experience to say, I don't understand, I'm afraid, um, I can't see the future, you know, bad things are happening and I don't know how to deal with it. And I'm I'm asking God, sometimes I'm even blaming God for things, but that's the, that's the interim uh, beyond once those things are articulated and taken into hand, 
the thing that comes back is that yet I will continue to praise God mm-hmm. because you know he's he knows what he's doing and I can't see the full picture. So yeah. lament is a is a very valuable part of our lives in ways yeah. uh, to express uh, our fears and our apprehensions, but they should lead us to uh, leaning on mm-hmm. on the Lord for strength. Yeah, that's good. Charlie, how about you? Have you been processing since Tuesday? I'm thankful that that we live in America and that we have a, a process for going for voting and the ability to exercise a vote. And, um, you know, I think things could be so much worse. Tomorrow we're going to have an emphasis on prayer for the persecuted church and just hearing about Christians in other countries that uh, it's so, so difficult. I think there's just so much like blowing around in our culture that, and it does affect the church. I mean, you know, I, it seems to me like a lot of things that were said from both sides were, were wrong and we've kind of, each, each has kind of had to eat some pie, you know? So the one side said that, you know, there's going to be a landslide win for, for Biden and the Senate's going to flip and it's just going to be a, a landslide and that that was the polls were were wrong um the other side though said well if biden wins the stock market's going to go down it's going to tumble that hasn't happened the other is is that all of this stuff about covid is going to go away the right extreme right said because it's all uh related to politics and as soon as uh you know the election is over COVID restrictions will go away. Well, that hasn't happened either. So there's a lot of things that were said that were just not not true. So that kind of gives us pause. I think as it affects the church, I mean, I just sent out an email about uh, helping people to think critically about the election. And I got, I got three replies, three responses. The first was a really encouraging email saying, I really appreciate how you told us to milk all the cows, but basically make your own butter. And here's what different Christians have differed on this, but I really appreciate you letting us decide. Second person said he was really pretty disappointed with me and basically said he felt like I had stacked the deck in my my comments that were much more in favor of Trump in what I said in the email. And another resigned his membership from the church and saying, I can't believe that you can't see how good Trump is for our country and that I've just had enough. And the Piper article just sent him over the top and he's resigned his membership. So it's kind of like, you know, I'm making some sports analogies, but Antonio Brown is an incredible football player, Hall of Famer. But he's not on a football team until this week. Nobody wanted him. And so the jury's out. How is he going to do for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? Are they going to win the Super Bowl? Now they got A.B. on their team. And the reality is A.B. is great in some of the things he's able to do on the field. But the drama that he brings to the locker room and off camera is a lot of people. He's just a very divisive, polarizing person. Our president, unfortunately... It has made it's he's done some great things for some of the laws that then Supreme Court justices and things like that, but it's made things very 
turbulent waters for the church. Mm-hmm. And that has been a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, it has been a challenge. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how uh, maybe the temperature of the water changes, you know, if the presidency, you know, I keep saying if, and Charlie keeps saying, why do you keep saying if, you know, but I'm not going to say anything until it's called and all the, you know, legal stuff goes through, but it's just going to be interesting to see if the temperature changes. And if so, how, you know, I I think the last few years, um, I've tended to, when I think through application and where we need to be challenged, I kind of think through like kind of challenging cultural Christianity because I do think it has been tied up a little bit with the Trump presidency and so kind of challenging that. But if it flips, then, you know, um, how might that, how might then we, you know, need to be encouraged more for in light of the culture and also just like push more against whatever might be happening, you know, um, whatever gets passed, you know, depending on whatever legislation, you know, this Equality Act and all that stuff that might get passed. Like it's just, it could change the way even, you know, we think about pastoring and teaching, um, I was listening to a um, really good sermon by Scott Sauls. Uh, it was the week before the election, so it must have been last Sunday. <laughs> it was, uh, I, I was a little bit, you know, Scott, I don't think you should have had such a provocative title. I think the title was just, it was either how would Jesus vote or how should Christians vote? But it was very, it was very much not what his sermon was about because he didn't give an answer to either of those questions, really. Um, but one thing he said in the sermon was he said he compared voting and whoever's president and being a Christian, he compared that to um, some health conditions that he has. So he takes medication for, um, I think it's high cholesterol, right? And so he takes this pill for high cholesterol, but when he took the pill, started taking the pill, he started getting, um, the side effect was like some nerve pain and nerve damages and like shooting things through his body. And so he had to take a second pill to correct what went wrong with the first pill. And he kind of said, you know, like that's a little bit like what, voting is like in the sense of I'm going to take, I'm going to cast a vote or whatever, you know, for what I think is going to cover the biggest sweeping issue that I need to deal with. But then my life needs to be like the second pill where I'm kind of like a correction to whatever comes with my vote, recognizing that, you know, the vote isn't perfect. Right. And it doesn't cover every single thing that a Christian needs to cover. And I thought that was really like it was a really thoughtful uh, response. And so then just even thinking through whatever happens, you know, these next four years, how is my life and how can I encourage other Christians life to kind of be that second pill, right. To correct like kind of whatever um, happens, right. So that we can respond. So I thought that was helpful in terms of my own personal response uh, to this last week. I spent probably way too much time looking at um, memes, election memes, which <laughs> uh, on the one hand, I'm I'm thankful for the internet because the Lord has gifted us with uh, many hilarious memes this last week. Uh, on the other hand, it probably hasn't been as good for my soul as maybe I would like to think that it is. Um, so, you know, that's one way. But another way, like I was really, really pleased. Um, our young adults group on Wednesday, uh, we had about 10 folks show up and uh, we just sort of sidelined the book that we were discussing and it just kind of naturally turned into, you know, talking about the election and things that were happening. And I thought it was good just to let them have the space and not awkwardly shut that down to force a book discussion, but it was really healthy. Um, it was probably the, one of the best conversations on like politics and voting that I've had with other Christians. 
uh, just because the group the group was split. You know, no, there wasn't like unanimous agreement on who to vote for or how to vote or anything like that. But everyone listened to each other and respected, and there was no stereotyping, and people got to share the stories behind why they voted the way they did. And it was just really striking to me because, and then people would share their stories about why they voted. Let's, you know, let's say for Trump and one of the other young adults who voted for Biden will look and say, thank you for sharing your story. Like, I didn't know that about you, you know? And it was just really, uh, there was no, no one was shutting each other down. No one was, uh, you know, and it was just, I thought it was so healthy and it just struck me as, man, I would, I, I hope that our churches can be safe places for people to share their stories behind why they vote and they don't feel like they're going to get shut down because of some big stereotype of, you know, all people who vote Trump are like this or all people who vi- vote Biden are like this, you know, or whatever. But it was just a really, it, it was just healthy for me, you know, to be there with them and to hear them. And um, yeah, I thought it was really positive. So that was probably the best part of my week in processing you know, events and being able to do that with other Christians. And so, um, yeah, that was really encouraging. I like that idea of making corrective measures as you proceed. Uh, One of the noteworthy uh, theologians of the last century, and I think it was Karl Barth said, uh, all I need to proceed through life is the Bible and the newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Events, these events are not over yet. And so I just want to encourage those who are listening. Um, let's uh, continue to pray and lean in uh, to the Lord and um, be level headed about this. Let's be careful that we're not, you know, stoking the fire of conspiracy and fake news and divisiveness. But um, let's really seek to be a healing balm uh, in our community, in our land, on social media. Uh, whatever the case may be, uh, because we have a hope that's bigger uh, than politics. And uh, so let's put our hope in the right place. And with that, let's go ahead and transition to talking about that hope here in Mark chapter 9, which begins um, in verse 2 with the transfiguration. Last week, we kind of uh, we cut short a little bit um, verse 1, uh, the discussion on verse 1 where Jesus uh, says, uh, truly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death and they, uh, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Uh, and then he says that, and then it jumps right into the transfiguration. And we didn't have a lot of time to discuss that, but I did want to, this is kind of a bonus round surprise question from Mike. Like, oh, Mike, great. do you think uh, in verse one, uh, is Jesus talking about, you know, this idea of um, see the kingdom of God after it has come with power? Do you think that's directly talking about the transfiguration? Is it talking about his resurrection and ascension? Uh, could it be both? Uh, what do you think is, you know, I've seen, I've seen scholars go both ways on this. What do you think is um, Jesus getting after here in verse one? I think the direct ties to the transfiguration, but I think it also does telescope to things that are about to come. And you, you mentioned Jesus' ascension, which is certainly in view. Uh, but the... Um, Another thing is, as you work through church history and the book of Acts, uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit to be the comforter and the and the guide for the early church, uh, I think is certainly in view here as well. Mm. I mean, when God's kingdom comes in power, 
I, that's certainly a piece of it. You know, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in a variety of geographical places. Yeah. That comes right out of the first chapter of Acts. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I mean, uh, you know, there's a l- larger discussion here of talking about what was the expectation for the kingdom? What was the expectation for the second coming uh, and all of that? And, you know, I certainly think, uh, you know, you get when you get by the time you get to Paul, you know, Paul's expectation was that it could come at any time, uh, you know, that Christ could come again at any time. Um, but, you know, here the discussion sometimes gets lost in, oh, well, did, did the disciples, did Mark have it wrong when he wrote this? You know, the kingdom that Jesus was going to come back like right away. And therefore he wrote these words down wrong or something. And I just think that's just not really what's in view, um, right? The, the second coming, but it's, you know, seeing the glory of the Lord. Uh, which, as you said, there's kind of a lot of here, resurrection, coming of the Holy Spirit with power. Um, yeah. Well, so he goes right from this to this transfiguration, which is really this, you know, just magnificent moment. Um, uh, he goes up on the mountain. He brings uh, James, John, and uh, Peter. Peter, right. Yeah, I just want to make sure I had that right. Uh, Peter, James, and John up there. And, uh, you know, he becomes radiant, intensely white. Moses and Elijah come up, which uh, kind of still, I didn't have enough time to look into this, but do they have a, a body? And if so, how do they have a body right now? It's just, there's a, kind of a lot of questions here that I have and uh, really hoping Mike here can help us make sense of some of this. But what is the significance, uh, maybe especially in light of um, some Old Testament, you know, Daniel, um, Daniel chapter seven, but in, you know, what is the significance of the transfiguration here with Jesus becoming radiant and intensely white? Uh, Mike, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back, go back to you again to open us up. Yeah, I think it's a it's a glimpse of his transcendent glory, um, and you know the the whole concept of light uh, is replete in Scripture, uh, Old Testament and New Testament as well, and um, you know the. The Ancient of Days, you mentioned Daniel, the Ancient of Days is being described as, you know, being enshrouded in light as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I th- I think one of the other uh, things that is at play here is that I think Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. Mm-hmm. And so they, <clears throat> they uh, you know, they're both there to, to have a conversation with Jesus. And strangely enough, Mark doesn't tell us what their conversation was about. Uh, neither does Matthew, but Luke does. Hmm. Uh, Luke tells us that they were talking about Jesus' exodus. Mm-hmm. That's the exact word in Greek as well. Mm-hmm. His exodus that he was about to perform in Jerusalem. And so at least for that gospel writer, the whole focus of attention from that point forward isn't on the passion, the death, the suffering, the resurrection of Jesus, but it's actually on his ascension. And that's where the story's going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had that written down, um, some of the Old Testament connections here. Uh, so going up on a mountain sort of um, uh, parallels, you know, Mount Sinai where Moses received the law and the revelation of God. And I think there's a parallel here that this transfiguration and, you know, even the Lord speaking, right? This is my son. Um, listen to him. I, I don't, uh, sorry, I don't have the exact, um, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's uh, verse seven. Um, sort of, it's a, it's a revel, it's a divine revelation, right? And uh, the transfiguration is a revelation, 
uh, into who Christ is and his divine role. And so you have that. You also have um, uh, Mark's uh, Mark uh, points out six days, I think. Yeah. And uh, that's Moses's six days on on the mountain. Right. Uh, it's a high mountain. Um, so, yeah, a lot of parallels here. And then, as you pointed out, Luke has the language of the Exodus. Um, so and I think that's important to see this as revelation of who Christ is, you know, to the disciples that this isn't something that they could, you know, Christ's identity is not something they could ascend to on their own accord, but has to be something that is revealed to them. Charlie, what do you think? I think there's a lot here and it, it's worthy of reflecting on. I don't think, <clears throat> I don't feel like I've mined a lot of this, uh, the significance of it, but um, we were told to listen to him. And that is what Moses had said in Deuteronomy 18 about himself, that one will come after me and to him you shall you shall listen to him. And so that gets referred to in, in Acts chapter 3. And so clearly there's this idea of Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And both Elijah and Moses both have the 19 experience, Exodus 19 and 1 Kings 19, where they both go on a mountain and they have a similar experience of the cloud. And the cloud symbolizes God's presence and God's protection of his people. And here Jesus is, you know, up in this cloud, but he is the culmination um, and, and it goes on in this text and says, Elijah is the one who's going to come and restore all things. So Jesus is the one who's going to be restoring all things. It's, it's pointing to the kingdom, pointing to Jesus being what Moses and Elijah uh, were speaking about. And to think that um, Peter's answer is really quite humorous, that he wants to have three shelters to make them, you know, they're all you know, in, I'm sure and the text doesn't tell us if they're in bodies or not, but they're all three, you know, glowing. And I guess uh, Peter wants to make three shelters to give each kind of their equal glory. And he wants to prolong this and wants, rather than recognizing that this is actually identifying Jesus also as the suffering servant, speaking of his exodus, speaking of what's to come with him, and this has all been kind of foreshadowing, pointing to the cross before the resurrection. So it's a lot here. And Peter doesn't, it just, I love how the Mark text just says, for he didn't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> for they were terrified. Yeah. So. I wouldn't know either. <laughs> Mike, I mean, I know this is all stipulation. And what's, I mean, what's hard is, you know, Moses and Elijah only appear together in one other place in scripture. And that's in Revelation, right? So um, this, it's, this is all stipulation, but Mike, do you think they had bodies or how, how could they be recognized as Moses and Elijah, you know, without bodies, I guess, but even with bodies, how would they know? Uh, it's just, um, well, if you assume that, you know, they are, they are in resurrected bodies and that's a big assumption. Yeah. Um, then I, you know, the only, the only test case we have to look at is Jesus resurrected body when he was able to appear in rooms, but when the door was locked and he was able to eat fish with the disciples. So he, he does some things that are like normal human functions like eating, 
but other, but appearing or or you know being able to walk into a room that's locked up i mean that's yeah. that's certainly supernatural yeah I, I think that's correct me if i'm wrong i think that's probably the only example we have of um of resurrected body experiences in the new testament well we do have those few that were raised uh, in, in, matthew. in matthew 28 yeah, yeah. that no one ever else comments on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like a pretty big deal, but <laughs> I, I wonder too if this text is also a for Moses and Elijah when they had God speak to them like that. It was greatly reaffirming to them of their call, God's call in their life and what they have been called to do. Peter points to this event uh, in Second Peter, and he just says mm, yeah. in in attacking those that basically were undermining his leadership. And he says, um, you know, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word. He goes on, but he basically is making it clear that we were there. We, we have seen his glory, and this is part of his apostolic uh, authority is this experience that he's had. Yeah. Have you ever, either of you been to the Vatican Museum no. uh, and seen Raphael's um, picture, uh, painting of the Transfiguration? No. Um, it's really impressive. Uh, the, uh, the icons that you get on the internet don't do it justice, but it's in a room by itself in the museum. And there's a little bench in front of it where you can um, sit down and contemplate. I think I sat there a half an hour the, the time no. I was there. It's, it's so impressive to look at. But um, the story is that uh, Raphael died early. I think he was 37 years old. And um, four cardinals dressed in purple carried his coffin uh, around the streets of Rome. But in order to announce who this person was, <clears throat> some of his friends had taken that uh, painting and uh, were walking ahead of the coffin so that, you know, when, when everyone could see, you know, the, uh, the fine work that he had done. They followed uh, in the procession, and it, it was a huge pro pro uh, procession around Rome uh, for this funeral. But anyway, it just just to tell you, this this passage has impressed a lot of people in a lot of different ways, and I think that's probably one of the best artistic examples that we mm. have of mm. Jesus' transfiguration. Mm. Pro probably not exact, of course. Yeah, <laughs> right. But uh, but really impressive. Yeah. Wow. Um, one thing I thought was interesting: a couple of commentaries that I read were um and that connected this uh, a little bit too with peter here you know peter wants to build a dwelling place right for for christ and for moses and elijah and what he doesn't understand is that uh, god has already provided a dwelling place right and it's in christ and so before peter's eyes uh, god is dwelling with humanity already right that's already happening and Jesus is is the dwelling place. He is the tabernacle, right? As um, uh, John says. And so I thought this was interesting because a couple commentators pointed out that here in the Transfiguration, um, Mark's Christology 
it's in different language, but Mark's Christology is getting very close to John's uh, in terms of uh, God, God in the flesh, right? And we and we see that in this transfiguration with the glory being revealed uh, in the transfiguration. I thought that was just interesting that it's a different. It comes at a different point in the narrative, and it's very different language and all of that. But it seems to be, you know, getting very close to um, John's understanding of the incarnation and uh, God becoming man. Um, so I thought that was I just thought that was an interesting point that I hadn't seen here. I also think this passage is closer when we think of Jesus in his glorified state. Uh, I don't think the resurrection. I think I've already commented on this, but the resurrection appearances before he was ascended into heaven, he still is, is veiling his glory. And when we see him in Revelation 1, and his eyes shone like the sun, or, you know, and his hair is white, and it's just uh, the glory of Jesus, it's really similar to this here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think this is more of what the glorified state looks like than, than just even Jesus's resurrection Hmm. appearances. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's keep moving here through Mark. So, um, immediately after this, uh, transfiguration, he comes down from the mountain and the disciples are in crisis. Once again, (laughs) we see in Mark that whenever the disciples are without Christ, they fall into crisis. And so, you know, to their credit, uh, the others, you know, so Peter, James, and John were up on the mountain, but the others, uh, they they tried to keep busy, right, uh, carrying on the mission uh, while the others were up on the mountain. And so Jesus comes down and it's kind of in disarray <laughs> uh, and things aren't going so well for the disciples. Uh, they have tried to liberate this demon-possessed boy but cannot. Uh, the crowds are frustrated, it seems. Um, so when the crowd sees Jesus, it says they are, um, uh, immediately all the crowd, when they saw him were greatly amazed and ran up to him. It's almost like they're relieved, you know, finally, <laughs> you know, the real thing is here. Um, and so you just get the sense it wasn't maybe going well for the disciples who had, who had stayed down on the mountain. So anyways, we have this demon possessed boy comes, right? The father comes and we have this demon possessed boy who seizures convulsing the demon tried to throw him into fires and you know, lakes and all of that. Um, so what is this passage then, you know, when Jesus speaks to why it wasn't, why the disciples could not cast out the demon, um, how, what, what does this passage indicate about the key failure on the part of the crowd and of the disciples? And then what does the father have that the disciples lacked? That makes sense. So what's, yeah, what do you guys think, Mike? Well, initially, just, just before we get to that question, his disciples, not counting Peter, James, and John, were having an argument with the Pharisees. So I can only assume that the argument had to do with exorcism because that's what follows in the passage here. But in the, you know, throughout the intertestamental period and up until Jesus' day, the Pharisees were able to perform exorcisms, uh, and, and we, we see references to that in the New Testament as well. Uh, and one of their um, incantations uh, had to do with finding out the demon's name, and then you, by having his name, you have some power uh, to perform the exorcism. 
And so the question came up then, you know, what happens if you try to exercise someone who's mute, can't mm. find out the name of the demon because the person can't speak? And the answer was, we don't know, but when Messiah comes, he'll be able to do this. Mm. And so when, when Jesus is able to perform this exorcism that the disciples could not, I think for the original audience, it would have said to them, this is the Messiah. Mm. Yeah, the, the disciples are, you know, his... Uh, I've never heard this. This is really good. Where are you getting this idea that the Pharisees were able to drive out demons? Well, Jesus. Jesus says when he's accused of driving out demons by the prince of demons, yeah. Beelzebub, he says, if I drive them out by, uh, by Satan, by whom do your sons drive them out? Indicating that the Pharisees were huh. uh, exercising, exorcising people. Yeah, That's an interesting point, Mike. So... I'm not at all challenging what you said, just and questioning, you know, um, because Jesus here towards the end, he connects it to, um, you know, verse 29, he says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So what's maybe the connection with maybe some of what you just shared with this idea of not being able to be driven out except by prayer? Well, Jesus spends a lot of time in prayer alone. Uh, yeah. We see that uh, in a couple of places um, the first one is right after his baptism. Uh, so, um, so I, I, um, I'm thinking of healing here as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would say that what you're getting at, I think they both can be true. What's, yeah. What Ben is bringing out is that he's really rebuking the disciples' lack of faith and the need for them to pray. And so, but... <clears throat> well, I think what you're saying is there's an insight here that the, the scribes, this would have been another evidence, another indicator that, bing, this is the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And you guys, these are even certain sniff tests that you've had and benchmarks to say, well, for the Messiah, and you're missing them all, and you're still asking for signs, when this should be a really clear bell that that uh, Messiah has come. But I think the we can all relate to the father in his just he's exasperated he's mm-hmm. he's done he just you know if you can do anything can you you know and and she's like if you can you know like do you realize who's standing in front of you and his love for uh, his people but we we're, we've all been there and we all feel like that at times and i just love the the classic reply of lord i believe but help my own belief yeah. and we need that all the time is that our, we have faith but that faith needs to to go down deeper to the unbelieving parts of our heart yeah <clears throat> so do you think you know charlie you, you said this early on in your response there do you think jesus is primarily um rebuking or chastising the disciples for lack of faith or the crowd or both and this is a question for both of you guys. Is he is he really like is he really kind of rebuking the disciples, the crowd, or both? That was a question that I had on this text. I would say it's both. I think that Jesus is one of the main things that he's teaching throughout the gospels <clears throat> in his discipleship method is he's constantly teaching us what it means to have faith. And the faith is in him and who he is. And so 
that's really what he's trying to grow and exercise this muscle. And so he's constantly commenting about faith. Um, and I, I think that's really important for us to see because I, don't, I think a lot of times our discipleship methods and the things that we're trying to teach people, often we don't really talk about, you know, faith. Mm-hmm. And so it, it challenges kind of how we disciple, how we preach and teach. Yeah. Mike, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, I think it also, this discussion often centers around healing when we, we are talking about mm-hmm. uh, our day and, you know, what's what's the role of faith in healing. Um, I think there are many examples of healing in the New Testament where faith is mentioned directly, you know, uh, go your way, your faith has saved you. Um, but there are other times when there are healings that are performed and there's no mention of faith at all. It doesn't mean that faith wasn't there. It just means that wasn't the focus of attention uh, on that yeah. particular occasion. So, I, you know, I, I think, you know, faith is, is uh, very necessary and it needs to grow. Um, but, um, but I also know that, you know, healing often comes uh, in moments where um, our belief is, is wavering. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the example with this man, uh, the father of the, of the boy. Yeah. That uh, he really wants to believe, but he, he does an assessment of himself and knows that he's not at a real state of strong belief and asks for help with that as well as healing his son. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I, we're going to, um, for those listening, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about faith and healing uh, in just a minute. Um, really <clears throat> want to get into that a little bit more, but um, yeah, Mike, I think that's all, that's all good. And, uh, this, this man, uh, this father is really another one of these examples in Mark of, um, someone who just casts everything like they know their last hope is the Lord, right? So the woman with the hemorrhage, and then you have the Syrophoenician woman and, you know, uh, all these characters in Mark that just, they are at the end of themselves and cast themselves on the Lord. And I think it's a good lesson that there's no specific like quantity of faith that makes enough faith. (laughs) There's no, there's no, there's not a measurement here because this man has a very small faith. And it's almost maybe a lesson here that genuine faith will recognize how inadequate it is, right? Genuine faith is aware of, I have doubts of, you know, I, I'm weak, uh, and that, this man seems to have that awareness of the inadequacy, and yet he becomes a believer not when he ascends to a certain point in faith, uh, but when he risks everything with what little faith he has and casts himself on the Lord. Right? That's that's the moment for him, and when Jesus responds to him, and the disciples don't really seem to get that yet. Still, right? This is not a lesson for the disciples. They don't really seem to get this sort of casting everything they have on the Lord. Um, one question I have for both you guys uh, is, you know, Jesus seems to be, whether it's the crowd, the disciples, or both, he's rebuking for this lack of faith, right? He says, oh, faithless generation. And, you know, this this type cannot be cast out by anything but prayer. So what's the difference between the unbelief here and the unbelief in Nazareth in chapter six, where Jesus went and it said he did few miracles there and it Mark seems to connect it with the unbelief in Nazareth. So what's the, you know, what's the difference between that incident in chapter six 
versus this one here because in both it seems like the big obstacle is unbelief what do you guys think have any thoughts on that <laughs> i'm waiting for the senior pastor <laughs> well <clears throat> there's we could do a whole bible study or a whole study on just how faith is used or that even the term belief uh, in the gospels and in the Gospel of John, like in particular, so many times it says they they believe, but because of fear of being put out of the synagogue, you know, they didn't go public with their faith. So they had a belief, but the belief wasn't strong enough to actually save them and for them to go public with their faith. And so a lot of times the belief in the Gospel of John, for example, is really an inadequate belief. Um, so I haven't in thinking through the, the situation here between Mark 6 and, and this one, I would kind of go back to what you were saying, that sometimes uh, the Lord meets us in our sincere uh, struggle with faith and is, is pleased to meet that. Whereas in Mark 6, it seems like there's more of a, the, there's a determination. The lot is cast that we are against him. And we know who your parents are. We know where you've come from. You're, you're small town, small time, small family. No, no great pedigree here. We know your brothers and sisters, and we know we we know, you know, even naming the mother and not the father. Like we know where you've come from. There's you're nothing special, is what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And that's clearly that they're against him and more of a hardened mm-hmm. unbelief. Yeah, Luke tells the same story in chapter 4 with a little more detail. And by the end of the story, they take him to a cliff and attempt to to throw him off, but he he escapes. Um, So Great first sermon, right? So hostility, you know, followed directly behind, you know, his initial proclamation that, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because Mm -hmm. I've come to preach the gospel. Uh, I also wanted to say parenthetically that you know, we've been we've been equating uh, the two words uh, faith and belief, and mm-hmm. there's there's a reason for that. Uh, the Greek word for for faith or belief or trust is all one word in Greek, so those those are pretty much interchangeable terms. I know you guys know that because you've been through some of <laughs> Not everybody who listens would. That's good, but I do think I wonder. You know, um, if there's a little bit of a when when we use those words, are we kind of connotating a little bit of a different intention you know and i think faith trust i don't know that's a good question we don't dwell on that now but um good point um do you think there's any significance you know we've talked a lot in mark i don't know if if this would be a proper sandwich technique uh but this story of the demon possessed boy does quote unquote it's sandwiched in between you know the end of the transfiguration jesus says the son of man must suffer many things and then immediately after this, he like very directly talks about um, being delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him, right? So there's suffering on the on the front end and then there's being delivered and the son of man being killed on the back end. Do you think that tells us anything, you know, about the significance of this story here with the demon possessed boy? Is there any, is there any tie there, do you think? I was I was especially looking at um, at the end here with the demon possessed boy when it's when it's he appears dead, right? And then, you know, Jesus kind of resuscitates him. You know, is there any significance? Maybe I ha- you know, you're helping me think through something, Ben, because 
you see sandwiches all through Mark, you know, and I'm, I'm focusing on the questions and you're giving me a different paradigm to look at. And if you hadn't mentioned it, I would have never seen it. So now that you've kind of raised it, I'm like, hmm, do you have, is there something to that? Or are we trying to get a sandwich into everything and this yeah. just kind of chronologically happens? I'm not really sure, but it's, it's, I would have never thought about it. And now you've got me thinking about it. So yeah, I'm not sure if it's know. technically a sandwich, you know, because it uh, it's not it's not an interrupting interruption of one event for a second story, then back to the first event. But there's a a theme, right, of suffering, healing the demon possessed boy, and then son of man suffering and, and dying again, right? So you see that. So I just wonder if there's a connection there. I think there is, um, and I that's that's one of um, Mark's writing techniques, uh, as you've pointed out before, Ben, um, the technical word for that is inclusio, um, and he uses it to his advantage. I mean, he's he's a fair writer, mm-hmm. um, but it's his it's his way of telling a story, uh, and <clears throat> because he's a good storyteller, he's able to sometimes build suspense into a story or give you a snippet of something and then come back to it later, so that you go you have an aha moment when you go, oh yeah. He just said that like a, one chapter before this or you know, a couple of sentences before this. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was just especially connecting it again with the, with the demon possessed boy. And it's almost like, you know, uh, he had already said that he, he must suffer. Peter rebukes him. He says again, at the end of the transfiguration, he's going to suffer. He's about to say that I'm going to be delivered and killed. And in the midst of all that here, you have this boy who had was, is exercised, appears dead and Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him up and gives him life again. And you just wonder, is this um, not even just foreshadowing, but is it meant to kind of say if he has power over the dead, right, to raise them from new life, like, will you not have hope when he is delivered up to be killed? Like, can you not put your trust in this in this one who has power over death in the grave? I, I don't know. Um, I'd be inclined uh, to say, you know, that's that's a possibility, but... Uh, I think it's clear from the text that this boy isn't dead. He just appears as being right. dead. But but more to your point, there are <clears throat> there are other people that Jesus resurrects from the dead, and those certainly should have played into the thinking of the disciples yeah. uh, at Jesus' death to say, yeah. you know, he he was able to to do this. Right. Jairus's daughter earlier is sure. another example of that. Yeah. Um, so very good. Well, let's keep going then to. Um, so, well, actually, I, wanna, I wanted to finish this conversation on um, the, this, this boy. What would be your words of encouragement? Maybe we don't need to get into a full theological discussion on this. Maybe it's not the place. But what would be your words of encouragement to those who are struggling with faith and healing and you know, praying for healing, maybe not receiving it or not receiving it the way they want? What would be your encouragement of, you know, does that mean that we lack faith if we're not being healed? Like, well, how would you all encourage those who are listening. Yeah. Well, it's at some point the, the healing is going to break down because we all break down and we're going to, we're going to die. So at some point along the way, you're going to come to this crisis where if I have enough faith, God will heal me at some point that that's going to blow for everybody. It ain't going to work. It's not going to work. So now I think, we, I've seen, and I've seen people bottom out from this that were in a theology, and they were really told, "Well, you just didn't have enough faith, 
and somebody's struggling with a long-term illness, they can't diagnose what it is, um, and, you know, the Lord gives thorns, and I just come back to Paul pleaded three times with the Lord. Did Paul lack faith? He pleaded three times for the Lord to take it away, and God said, my strength is, is perfected in weakness, and Paul accepted the thorn and said that he would rejoice all the more in his weakness. And so sometimes, and it's interesting that I was having this conversation with somebody this week who was reading this very text, interestingly, and was struck. And I said, well, this is interesting. We're going to be talking about this Saturday. Um, That weakness opens doors that strength never would. And that's one of the things I've learned from my dad is that even his weakness is still opening doors for me. I mean, the opportunity I had to share my faith with somebody this past week, and it was really talking about my dad and how he went through ALS. And, and he, it was not like the, the script I would have written for my dad. Like, here's how finishing well looks like. You go out in a blaze of glory. It was like you become weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker, and you are content in that and people want to say how tell me about that and it opened doors and it still continues to open doors that strength would have never opened and so we all have all these plans of how we're going to do these certain things even covid is opening doors for the church that we need to say i mean it's not like we don't pray for a cure for covid God has his purposes and his reasons for the delay, the waiting, and the struggle and the difficulty. And it's it's purifying the church, our, our addiction to numbers and wanting to know how many people came to your church. Well, all that's going out the window. I mean, you know, it's like the, the paradigm for growth has all of a sudden become a much more biblical one. You know, are the saints growing in their faith? Are they growing in their hope? Are they reaching out to each other and praying for each other. And anyway, I I think there's some healthy things that are coming out of a, what we say there's a lack of faith in the world to just heal us of COVID. And so that would be my response. Mike. Well, <clears throat> as you know, um, I'm, you know, I have a, I have a problem with vision uh, and I've had it for the last 11 years. And uh, that is, um, I have an ailment uh, that's a neuropathy, and um, I've seen the the best doctors in uh, in Maryland. Uh, in fact, uh, a couple of the world experts. And what they told me was that uh, I have dead nerve cells in my optic nerves. And um, their concluding remark to me was, "Until somebody can find a way to resurrect the dead, nobody's going to be able to help you." Wow. So this is, <clears throat> you know. So I'm legally blind, although my periphery is not affected at all. It's just the central vision that's pretty much gone. And so, you know, I've got to have these magnifiers and things to read the text that uh, you guys are reading pretty naturally. So, yeah, over the last 11 years, I've had lots of struggles with this. You know, is the reason that I'm legally blind because uh, I don't have enough faith? Um, So I think often, you know, I, I come to the same conclusions that you just mentioned, you know, God has a way of bringing about uh, things that he would like to from our weakness. And mm-hmm. this is certainly a weakness. 
but at other times it's like, well, you know, I'm just assuming falsely that uh, that the normal thing is that everybody, you know, bats, uh, you know, a thousand and uh, things always go right and we never have any bad things come into our lives. And, and that's the norm we should expect. It's not the norm we should expect. We're fallen creatures who live in a fallen world and we, we have to come to grips with that at some point. Hmm. It works. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Mike, for sharing that. Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> I feel like I've become an apologist for this show recently, but uh, The Chosen it's really good. And it's been a big encouragement to me. If you, if you're listening, if you guys haven't had a chance to watch it, I've just really been really touched by that show and, uh, really has come at the right time, I think in my own, um, life, but, um, this is minor spoiler, but the last episode of the first season is, uh, the woman at the well. And so they always, well, they often in the episodes, they, the intro is an old Testament, story that's going to connect with how Jesus fulfills this story, right? So the um, the intro to that episode was Jacob coming into the land with his sons to start digging the well. And so they're up on this mountain. They, the, the sons are breaking ground and a stranger comes up to talk to Jacob and says like, what are you doing here? And Jacob's like, oh, like we're, we've come here to, you know, to, to settle here and we're building our camp. And the guy's like, why are you digging a well? here you're on top of the mountain the river runs around the mountain like you're not going to get anything here and jacob's like no this is where our, this is where our god told us to go and i says well who's who's your god oh, well it's yahweh I've never heard of that god tell me about him and he says you know well you know we can't see him but you know uh he called us and he sent us here and you know we're just sojourners we're passing through but this is where he told us to dwell and um you know the guy says wait so you're telling me that this god would call you into land tell you tell you to to dig a well where there is no there is no water uh you can't see him like why would you and, and he says you can't see him and he says oh well jacob interrupts his other oh, was one time that i that i saw him it was when i wrestled him and he broke my hip right? <laughs> 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 he interrupts and, you're, and this guy's like what are you talking about you know and why and he says why would you choose this god and jacob's response is we didn't choose him he chose us and then no, no sooner does he say that than the sons cry out they found something, they go back and the water's coming up from the ground, right? And it was just this really powerful image of the Lord chooses us, he calls us, and it's not easy, right? But Jacob had accepted, like, this is this is the God who he follows. And, you know, Paul accepted this is, I have no, you know, I, I pleaded um, the suffering, whatever the ailment didn't go away, but... I follow this guy. Like, like he he called me. He chose me. You know, where else am I going to go? And um, anyways, uh, I just think that's a, um, it was a powerful image for me. And uh, when the Lord calls us, it doesn't mean everything's going to be easy for us. So, um, but I know a lot of people struggle with this. And so if you're listening and you're struggling with this, even right now, just encourage you to reach out to someone, reach out to one of us. We'd be happy to walk with you through whatever your trial may be right now. Um, so after, so Jesus gives this, uh, you know, he heals the demon possessed boy. He gives this, I think it's his second passion prediction in Mark, uh, second of three. I think it's the most direct of the three. It says that he must be delivered and killed and he'll, he'll rise again. 
And then there's this immediate juxtaposition with the disciples, right? Because he's talking about dying, being delivered into the hands of, you know, men. And then the disciples are here over here debating who's going to be the greatest one among them, right? So you have this huge juxtaposition between the disposition of um, Jesus and the disciples. So how does Jesus then in his response to the disciples in verses uh, 33 to 37, how does he sort of overturn their understanding of what greatness really is? Charlie. Yeah, just thinking about this, the same grid through what you're thinking about faith and miracles and does God always heal us? And the, the disciples had a faith, but their faith was this, you know, the paradigm that they had of Jesus was he's going to be king, all's going to be great, we're going to reign with him, it's, and we're going to be, you know, who's going to be the greatest? <clears throat> and Jesus is turning that around, and we just see this cruciform life that Jesus is constantly holding up to us, that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and, and follow me. And lest a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it bears no fruit. And so the same idea here is the greatest, is the one who um, serves. And the, and the word here is really slave. It's the slave word. It's the one who just really it takes the, the lowest rung of the ladder and <clears throat> Jesus is holding that up as the one who's great. Yeah. Mike? Well, the ethics of the kingdom are really kind of opposite from our natural life. The, the first will be last and the last will be first. The greatest will be the least. The least will be the greatest. Those are, I mean, as Charlie's just alluded to, those are lessons that the disciples had to learn because their expectations were very different from that. And, and it's the same with us. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, we're li- Americans. Yeah. <laughs> li- living in this world and in this country is often the opposite of what expectations are in terms of uh, ethical considerations for the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we we have one foot in each realm, um, but we need to think about where we're going and, and uh, conform to the ethics that are required in the kingdom mm-hmm. we're going to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Um, one commentator, uh, so I've, I've really been enjoying James Edwards' commentary. Um, you know, it's a, I think it's a good balance of scholarly work and pastoral insight because it's very quotable. <laughs> so I've been quoting him a lot. I've really appreciated some of the things he's shared. But he said on this passage, he says, um, at no point does the way of Jesus diverge more sharply from the way of the world than on the question of greatness. Mm-hmm. I thought that was, it was just like very insightful. At no point does the way of Jesus diverge more sharply from the way of the world than on the question of greatness. You even think about that and you go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Right, that's the whole thing he's overturning, you know, on the question of greatness, strength, and so on. Um, and so, you know, Jesus sort of redefines greatness really as service and humility, and in a in a society where that was not valued. Uh, so, uh, the commentator uh, Edwards he had some had some quotes from Plato as an example, right, of Plato's attitude towards service, and one of the in one of his. Uh, uh, dialogues. Uh, Plato. Plato asked the question: How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? <laughs> right? How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? And Jesus comes along and says, "Whoever you know wants to be first, you know, wants to be servant of all." Yeah. Uh, and it's just like, you know, what's going on? Uh, and then he, you know, he pulls this child onto his lap, 
And I think it would be easy for us to maybe with our 21st century eyes to assume that that culture was sentimental towards children, uh, but they were not, right? Like children, Greek or Jewish society, uh, were not was not sentimental towards, oh, he, look at that. He brought a child onto his lap. Like how endearing. Like, no, that's not. They, they were... Um, you know, certainly in Greek society, but even in Jewish society, their worth was really attached to their father or if they were a child bride to their husband. Um, you know, there was child labor and, and all that sort of thing. And so they were really the bottom rung of society in many ways. And Jesus puts this kid on his lap and uh, says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me uh, receives not me, but him who sent me. And this, it's this demonstration of the disciples, those who follow Christ must be so servant minded and so humble that they would receive and embrace a child, you know? Um, any, you guys have any thoughts on, on that, uh, with, with the child there, anything you want to add? It's a good it's plug really... for children's ministry and, <laughs> and getting, you really want to be great in the church. Come, come serve the children of the church. Yeah. And, that, that is certainly commended by Jesus himself right here. Yep. I, that's, you know, I've, I've given that advice to other young men before who want to be pastors. I think I shared this in one of the earlier uh, podcasts, but there was a tweet, you know, or a guy who's, he was in a room full of aspiring men who wanted to be pastors. And he said, how many of you would want to come up to like give the closing message and prayer right now you know all of them shoot up their hand and he says how many of you are serving in the children's ministry of your church and like all the hands went down he's like <laughs> okay then not interested <laughs> you know I, it, but it's uh you know young guys who okay you think you have gifts to teach and to lead go serve in children's ministry you know um that's a good good place that's where i got my start so all right well we keep going and then we have this um you know this anonymous Anonymous exerciser, you know, we don't have a name or anything. Um, but I think what's so interesting, I, I didn't see this initially, is, you know, there John is rebuking, um, rebuking this anonymous exerciser for doing something that the disciples were unable to do just a couple, you know, verses ago, right? <laughs> so there's definitely a that seems to be lost on him. But what I think is interesting here in, in Mark nine forty is. You know, John says, you know, are you going to rebuke this man? And Jesus says, you know, the one who is not against us is for us. But then in Matthew 12, 30, there's that other line where Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. So how do you guys think that uh, we can reconcile those two thoughts? Maybe it'd be helpful to explain a little bit of what's going on here in this immediate passage. But how do we reconcile those two thoughts, Mike? Well, you have to understand that Jesus had an itinerant ministry and he didn't have the advantage of uh, mass communication uh, or any of the advantages that we have um, in terms of information transfer. So whenever he would go from uh, town A to town B, he couldn't say, do you remember what I just said at town A? Because nobody would remember. He, he would have to start from scratch and do it all over again. So there are a lot of sayings of Jesus that get repeated time and time again. And he also adapts them to the situation that he happens to be in at any given time, uh, which is, I think is part of his genius. And I don't mean that as an insulting word. Um, uh, but anyway, um, so on a given occasion, there's no reason why he can't say one thing and then 
on another occasion say something that's slightly different because it fits the occasion and it makes the point that he want, that he's trying to make. Uh, and what he's the point that he's trying to make on this occasion is that this person who's performing exorcisms is doing a good work. And this is his way of commending the man. Yeah. Do you guys know where the passage is in, in with Moses where the similar type of thing happens? Where to me it's really kind of like a, a echo to remind us Jesus is the true and better Moses. But there's a place where Moses uh and I think it was with the with the I need to I need to find the reference, but um there's a reference just like this where and the Lord is like, no, if they're not against us, they're with us. Hmm. And I'm not, I'm blanking on where that's at, but this is a strong reminder to me hmm. of that. I recall the episode, but I, I can't put a finger on the exact yeah. reference. <clears throat> yeah, it also seems, you know, Jesus knows that, um, well, a couple of thoughts. One, here, um, the emphasis is on us. And in Matthew 12, the emphasis is on me. And I wonder if Jesus is maybe in a sense rebuking John and the disciples of, you know, kind of saying, I guess the thought might be, um, if you want to kind of reconcile the two, uh, is you can't be neutral on Jesus, right? But there may be a different ministry that Jesus has called others to that isn't going to be like this inner circle ministry, right? So I guess it's a different reference where in, the, in Matthew 12, Jesus is dealing with someone who isn't with him, isn't with me. Whereas he's kind of saying, look guys, like in this passage, there's going to be other people other than you, you know, doing my work. And so maybe drawing their attention because it seems like, I wonder, you know, John in particular seems to have a little bit of an elitist attitude in some of these gospel passages. So you have, you know, here, right, where he's rebuking this anonymous guy, you have uh, Luke 9, where he wants to call down fire on the Samaritans. In Mark 10, it's going to be him and James wanting to sit at the right hand of Jesus, right? So he seems to maybe have this elitist attitude of like, we're we're it, you know? And Jesus is saying, mm, not so much. <laughs> not so, there's going to be others, right? And they're going to have different ministries. And, um, you know, I, 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 for me, is I wonder if that's kind of what's in view here. And... Um, you know, which would be a good lesson for the church, you know, of you know, Jesus is non-negotiable, but let's remember that there are different calls and different types of ministry and we are not in competition, you know, with one another. Amen. Yeah. Um, which that's actually one thing that I've really uh, been touched by since coming to Shady Grove is that, um, you know, the best shining example of that has been uh, Colin Seeger over at um, Derwood Bible. I mean, I think I was here for maybe two months before he reached out to me to take me out to lunch and, you know, him and I have become good friends and just really appreciate, you know, locking arms with him. And, you know, he, he texts Charlie and I sometimes baptism jokes and stuff, but you know, <laughs> we, we recognize that we defer on some things, but we're still locking arms in ministry and that's been a, a good lesson to learn. So, well, let's wrap up here with just the end. Um, Jesus gives some pretty, stern um, warnings here at the end of Mark chapter 9 um, about temptations to sin and there's warnings about you know if this tempts you to sin then gouge out an eye or cut off a hand but uh, he he speaks about hell here quite a bit in this 
conclusion of Mark chapter 9, and it's important to point out that uh, Jesus speaks more about hell than any other person in the Bible, right? Uh, so what in particular here is Jesus warning us about, uh, whether in his warnings about sin or warnings about hell, and maybe a way to jump into this passage right away um, is, Mike, I'd be interested to hear from you, your thoughts on who is he talking about in verse 42 when he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. You know, I've heard, I think our, our initial thought would be that he's referring to the child who he put on his lap a few verses ago, but I think it's more accurate that he's talking about disciples. Yeah. Uh, but that might be confusing to readers because they would just think little one means the child, you know, and sometimes it gets taught that way. So Mike, who is he talking about there in verse 42? And then maybe if you could take us from verse 42 into these other stern warnings that he gives um, here. Yeah. When he's talking to the little ones, I think he means those who have little faith, but they're, but they're on the journey, Yeah, you know, uh, and they're, they're growing and they need uh, nurture and, um, and fellowship. They, they don't need to be thwarted uh, and pushed aside. I think that's what he has in mind there. Yeah. Um, I, I think the other thing that uh, rings true is that whenever Jesus says something, we need to pay attention to it and we can't just pass it off because it doesn't suit us. And that's and the, the whole topic of hell seems to fall into that category for many of our fellow um, citizens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we have a presupposition that... Um, a just God would not allow anyone to suffer eternal punishment. Therefore, anytime somebody says something about that or about hell in particular, uh, we have a tendency to shrug it off and go, well, that's, that can't be true. Yeah. If it's coming from Jesus, we have to pay strict attention to it. And yeah. as you mentioned, he, he says more about hell or mentions hell more frequently than anybody else in the New Testament. So the, you know that reality ought to grip us to say, you know, what exactly is he saying and uh, what what advice is he giving us to avoid such a place? Yeah. Uh, not pretending that it doesn't exist, but acknowledging that it does exist and it's not someplace we want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Charlie. Well, we've got this better language that's used four times here. And in this passage, you know, it's better for him a great millstone were hung around his neck and you were thrown into the sea um, you know better for you to tear out your eye enter the kingdom with one eye than with two um, anyway this this better word is used for it and that's that's really indicative of wisdom literature you know better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere better to dwell on the corner of a roof than with a quarrelsome wife but here the better imagery is used about heaven and hell and the way that hell is being described here is, we're told, unquenchable, fire isn't quenched, worm doesn't die. So it's this idea of, that all three of those strike at annihilationism that says it's just a kind of a, uh, a period, it quickly is over. This is ongoing torment. And, um, and fire is obviously a pretty... I can't think of a more scary imagery. And then the idea of the worm doesn't die. It, it, it's not just referring to us being worms that don't die. I, 
the literal idea is that when we die, our body decomposes, worms come out of us and eat us. Okay, nice ending to our, our body. And here he's saying the worm doesn't die. It will always be have nutrition for, for the next, uh, next meal. <laughs> Pretty scary imagery. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, I think it's striking to me, which again, I hadn't really seen before slowing down. Um, it's striking to me that Jesus is making warnings, not just about personal sin, but being a hindrance to others. Uh, so he says more about personal sin here. Uh, you know, so your, your, your foot, your, your eye, your hand. Uh, but at the beginning, right, it's, uh, causes someone else to sin. It'd be better for you to have this millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the water. And that's a real sobering warning, right? Because you're even just thinking then about our life as Christians, uh, in the simple and mundane life, everyday life of a Christian, we're either we can either enable others in their faith or hinder others in their faith. And that's has eternal weight and significance, right? Are we causing others to sin? Are we leading others into sin or are we leading others to righteousness? And um, that's just like very sobering. Uh, so again, this was, I think it was Edwards who said this, um, but very quotable. He said, the architectural plans of eternity are being drawn by the behavior of disciples today. That was like a really, another profound quote. The architectural plans of eternity are being drawn by the behavior of disciples today because the actions that we take today have eternal significance uh, for ourselves and for others. And that was just, of course, as a pastor, that's a sobering warning. You know, someone totally outside of all of our camps, but, you know, Carl Lentz, the Hillsong pastor, just, you know, fell from grace this week. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of other stuff going on. So that kind of took the back page in the news, but it's just another example of a, as a pastor, right? Either I'm helping others or I'm, I could be hindering others. And it's just a sobering warning, but even, even all Christians taking that to heart is we can either help others in their faith or we can hinder others. Um, any other final thoughts here? Don't want to end on a, um, sobering well, it's a good Can't ending that it ends with be at peace with one another. So it ends this chapter with yeah. the importance of, you know, this talks about the just the soberness of, of hell and the passage ends with have salt in yourselves, be at peace with one another. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So this idea that we're to make every effort to be at peace with everyone. Amen. Well, that's a good place for us to stop and close here on Mark chapter 9. May God give us the peace and the ability to be those who live at peace with others. Thanks for listening here to Mark chapter 9. We'll be back next week with more thoughts and more study on Mark chapter 10. Take care, everybody.